All right, it's good to be sharing God's Word. As I've said, we're looking at Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Daniel chapter 9 is a really significant passage of the Bible. And we're looking at verses 20 to 27. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. So turn with me there. Okay, Daniel 9.20 And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for this blessing of being able to look into your word, and we pray for the grace to be able to understand it. We pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to receive it. We pray for your blessing upon us today. For all those that are here in this place and those who are watching online, Father, we pray that you would help us to learn your word and grow through it. And Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who leads us into that understanding. And we pray that he would move in our hearts today and move in the hearts of those who may not be saved who are listening to this message. So we thank you once again for your goodness to us, for your grace, and for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today's sermon is concerned with probably one of the most important keys of Scripture um, that you'll probably find or probably know about. And what I mean by key is that a key is used, and if you've got a key, you can open up things, right? And so this key helps us to open up the meaning of other parts of the Scripture. And so the key specifically is, what are, in verse 24, these 70 weeks that Daniel is referring to? If we understand the meaning of these 70 weeks, it helps us to understand a whole lot of other things and helps to get our head around um, what one third of the Bible is actually all about, and that's prophecy. Okay? 
So, it will help us to understand. So, if you get your head around this sermon today, and you understand what these 70 weeks are about, and how it breaks down, you will more easily understand the tribulation period and where it comes from, Jacob's trouble, the second coming, the place of the church in this period, the significance of Israel back then, and also in the future. So, if you understand this thing, it will help you to better understand those things, and to interpret and understand the book of Revelation. Okay. So, if you pay close attention, and get your calculators out, there's a lot of maths. So, who's good at maths here? No, not, not even the astronomer's good at maths. He doesn't put his hand up either. Um, Paul's good at maths. There you go. There you go. All right. So, pay close attention and uh, I'm sure we'll, uh, you'll be blessed by it. But I want to recap. Just two weeks ago, I gave a, a sermon which examined the prayer. So, um, this passage is a response to the prayer that Daniel made for the sins of his people a couple of weeks ago. And his prayer was an acknowledgement of their rebellion against God. An admission that they found themselves being judged by God because of their own bad choices. And so in his prayer, he pleads for forgiveness, restoration for his people, not for their sake, but for God's sake. And he says it's for your sake and your name's sake that we, we need this thing. Okay, So that's a... And I made a specific point about that because oftentimes our prayers revolve around ourselves. But really our prayers should revolve around Him. I mean, the, when, when the Lord taught His disciples to pray, He starts off with, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It's really about God. So when we pray and have our minds centred in heaven and, and for God to be glorified, we will no doubt be doing God's will as a result. So I compared also the sinfulness of Israel in those days to the sinfulness of the church today. And the general rejection of God's word in the church and the misuse of God's word in the church in our days. And it seems as if much of modern Christendom has really created a God after their own likeness. A God that they're comfortable with. A God that they can manage. And it doesn't have to fit into the Bible, but can fit into some sort of morality that they uh, see that works. And so that's a dangerous thing, because if you create a God after your own liking and you begin to worship him, you're not going in the right God's direction. And that's called idolatry. And so my prayer and my challenge to us last week was that in this age of Laodicea, we should always be wary about who our hearts belong to. Because if our hearts belong to someone other than God, then we're going to be following them rather than him. And remember, the heart is deceitful above all things. And we still carry the old nature around with us and it deceives us and it wants us not to worship God because it does not want to be subject to him. So people create their own gods because they can manage that God. They don't want to be worshipping the real God because you can't control him and you have to go by his rules. And so that's something we need to be very, very careful about because the last church mentioned in Revelation is the church of Laodicea and it was neither hot nor cold, but it was very rich. And by coincidence, we live in probably the richest time in the history of this world. We are more rich than any other generation that has gone before us by far. And so we need to be careful of that. We also need to be very careful 
apart from being complacent and overly confident in our position because we go to an independent Baptist church, right, um, is to become proud and arrogant. And that's always a danger for us. And the reason it's a danger is when you look at the, the Pharisees, and we have much to learn from those guys, is that they had their doctrine pretty much right. They believed in the Bible. They had head, their heads filled with the knowledge of God and filled with the knowledge of His Word. They, In fact, they probably had most of it memorised. But they were probably the most self-deceived, proud, arrogant people that you find because they were better and they thought they were better than everyone else because they had it all worked out. And so we need to be careful that... As the Apostle Paul says, that the knowledge we have doesn't make us puffed up. And that we should always temper that knowledge with love. Because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so we can spend our time filling up our heads with all this knowledge, but if it doesn't produce fruit for the Lord, if it doesn't get used with love, we are in danger of becoming proud arrogant and that I never want us to see in that position. The other side of that spectrum, the Sadducees who were fighting always with the things, were like the liberals of their day. They only believed in the first five books of, of the Bible. They rejected all the, all the prophets. So they only picked what they wanted. But as a result of that, they refused to believe in the resurrection in an afterlife. They, they, they refused to believe in the prophets and also in things such as angels. Because they didn't have any of the other books. And for whatever reason, they, they chose to dismiss the spiritual intersecting with the real world. And that made them susceptible to other problems. Okay, So, in today's passage, Daniel is interrupted by an angel. Okay, So, while he's praying, before he can even finish, the angel comes. And I, I suspect it probably tapped him on the shoulder. Now, if it was me praying by myself and someone tapped me on the shoulder... Maybe I'd jump, I don't know. I suspect Daniel didn't jump. Um, this guy had it all together. And we even know the name of the, of the angel that came and tapped Gabriel on his shoulder during the evening prayer that he was offering. And Daniel calls that evening prayer his ablation. Okay? He was used to praying, as I've seen already, three times a day. That was his standard practice morning afternoon and evening he would pray and he'd stop everything that he was doing and he'd just go straight to the lord and he'd pray whether it was in his house and i suspect at one particular time he's praying on the balcony of his house so everyone can see remember he got himself in trouble for doing that so he never he never hid his prayer life but in this particular time he's praying and he's confessing the sins of his people and he's pouring out his heart to god He's finally realising, or something's worked together, and he's realised that their 70 years of captivity is just about up. And he's confessing his sin, and he's, I suppose it's a mixture of joy and sadness for what they've been through. Because remember, he was taken as a young kid. He was taken maybe 10 to 12 or 13 years of age, and he was, can you imagine the whole of your city being ransacked, burnt, and everyone, or most of the people, being removed, and you're taken away from your family, you're taken away from your, uh, you know, from your loved ones and your your home, and you're forced to live <coughs> in a foreign country and then adopt all their culture. So let's have a look and see what happens. Daniel nine twenty, and whilst I was speaking <coughs> and praying, 
and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God and for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, and I love the way he, he just, just for a moment, he goes, yay, while I was speaking. It's almost like he anticipates <coughs> someone saying, really? An angel came and touched you? Yeah, while I was speaking, he came and touched me. All right? The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening ablation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplication, just when he started praying, the commandment came forth from the Lord, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So, now Daniel describes Gabriel as a, does he call him an angel? He calls him a man. Gabriel a man or an angel? But we know he's an angel because he's flying around. He flew quickly to where he had to be, and we know from previous discussions that angel, that Gabriel, uh, alongside Michael, actually fought with the Prince of Persia and had already given other uh, information to Daniel. And so we know that Gabriel is uh, uh, an angel, but it's typical for angels to present themselves as people, as men. Actually, very often. In fact, one of the most one of the most common uh, places or examples of that is where the three angels presented themselves to Abraham as men, and they actually sat down to eat with Abraham. Remember, he prepares; he calls Sarah to prepare food for them. They sat down to eat, and then two of those angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot and his family, and they were they came across looking like men. And the other, the third one, which is a really interesting one in that particular story, um, the uh, Abraham, that story, Abraham calls him Lord. Actually, literally calls him Jehovah. So, looks like it was the Son of God who came to visit him, along with two angels. But angels can present themselves, and do, and have, in this particular case, and in that case as well, and possibly other cases. Actually, the Apostle Paul tells us to be hospitable because... You may be entertaining angels. So, well, if you don't know if you're entertaining an angel, they're going to look like you and me, okay? So it's a beautiful thought just to think about these things. Uh, any angels here? Any? <laughs> Would you confess, really, if you... Uh... Okay. But have you ever been interrupted while you while you've prayed? <clears throat> have you ever been interrupted? I don't mean an angel coming and tapping you on the shoulder, but I mean, while you were praying, an answer came to you. It's, it's a beautiful thing when that happens. You know, you may have been praying about something, what, what you should do, or you may have had some burden, or you may wanted to understand something you didn't understand before, and then all of a sudden something comes to your mind while you're in the midst of your prayer, and it's almost like that answer has arrived. And that's happened, and it's just a, a, a beautiful feeling uh, when, I've, when I've had that. But it's such a blessing to have the Lord near during times, especially of burdens and when you don't understand and you're fearful about something. And so in this time, Daniel's pouring out his heart and God, in the midst of his prayer, touches him and says, okay, I've got an answer for you. It teaches us that prayer also is as much about listening as it is about speaking. It's easy to speak. 
Look at me. Look how easy I speak. I can talk for hours on end without stopping. Some people say it's a strength, other people say it's not a strength. But in a conversation, which is what prayer is, it's as important to listen as it is to speak. We can yap all the day long, but if we don't learn to listen, we may be missing out God's actual answers for us because we're too busy yapping. So spend time in quietness as well. And while you and while you pray, God may be providing you an answer. And while you're reading his word, he may be writing you the answer through that, which is very, very common. So prayer is as much about listening as it is about speaking. And listening is a bit more of an acquired skill. You need to practice more of listening than you do in speaking. So let's continue. Gabriel tells Daniel that what he will tell him now is going to give him wisdom and skill and understanding. And that's what we're hoping to gain today too, through understanding these particular scriptures, which will unlock the truths of prophecy. And this passage is a key to Revelation as well. Okay, So look at verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So that's the six things there that he's listed all to happen within 70 weeks. Now, you'll remember uh, that Daniel had determined, as I've mentioned, by Jeremiah that the captivity of his people was about to end and that was 70 years, right? So they, they were being judged for 70 years in captivity, starting off with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who took them away. And now they're approaching a position at a time when Cyrus would be the one who would become king or ruler in that time. And God specifically points this guy out as someone he's going to use to free up his people. And from the time of Cyrus... We know that the Jews were allowed to start travelling home. Not all of them, just starting to. Okay, And so when Nebuchadnezzar, now pay close attention to these dates, right? When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel in 606 BC, the time of the Gentiles had begun. Okay? That's what the Bible speaks about, the time of the Gentiles. It started then, and a few years later, after that specific date, he took many families away from Judah, um, which had sinned against the Lord. The whole of a nation that sinned against the Lord, 70 years later, Cyrus is going to command them in 536 BC that they can go home and start rebuilding the temple. Okay? The temple, which lay in ruins. So the 70 years of captivity under the dominion of the Gentiles was a picture, though, not the end game, a picture of what was going to come after, because now he's speaking about 70 weeks. Well, are 70 weeks the same as 70 years? And the answer is no. They're two very different things. So Gabriel is telling something to um, uh, Daniel over and above what Daniel had already worked out. Okay, This is a much broader time scale than what Daniel had understood. And so this time frame brings us all the way through. Now, we've been looking at for weeks and weeks, over 20 weeks now, that there were the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were taken over by the Medo-Persians, and they by the Greeks, and they by the Romans. So that's all the time of the Gentiles. That was much longer than 70 years, right? 
So what we're going to find that is what all this means. What's the purpose of all, to God telling us all these different um, uh, empires that were going to come into play? And where does it end? Well, amazingly, it ends with the Messiah. And you'll notice the Messiah being mentioned in this passage. Not only it mentions the first time, but it actually includes the second time. All right? So Israel would not be free and independent for many, many years, much more than 70 years. And even though they got a chance to return to their homeland, it's worthy to note that they became dispersed during this time as well. They didn't all end up in Babylon and stay there. They became dispersed throughout the world, in a sense. And that was just the beginning of their dispersion, all right, or their or, or their um, uh, their captivity into foreign lands. They ended up settling into many foreign lands and adopted new languages and new cultures from that time. And just as a side note, are we aware? And this is what makes Israel the existence of Israel such an amazing thing in our day, because. After all this time, it's the first time they've actually been independent, living in their own country. And it may not be the complete you know, uh, land that they had originally, but they're for the first time, they're living in that place, free and independent. And as a side note, and that happened in 1948, it, were you aware that when they first started, this guy's going to give me trouble. Um, <laughs> When they, when they first moved in and they were given permission to start their own independent country called Israel again after thousands of years, they weren't sure which language to adopt. You see, a lot of them had, had taken up the languages of the other people. And when a language isn't used regularly, it doesn't adopt all the word, new words that have to deal with, well, how would you say Facebook? in a language that hasn't been used for 2,000 years. How do you say computer? How do you say whatever? So it's, if it's not an evolving language, so see Latin, Latin's dead, okay? It's not used, it's still a language, but they had faced the same problem. It hadn't actually grown with the time. So one of their problems was, well, what language, now that we've got our own country, what language do we use? I mean, they were coming now from all different parts of the world. And one of the languages, believe it or not, that was in the top, top runner was German. German was one of the top runners actually when they were thinking about what language now you think German like out of all the you know languages would have picked I mean the hard time they, 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 they experienced there but it was but they ended up picking their Jewish their own their Hebrew their own their own tongue and saying no we're going to revive it and they did and that's why they they speak Hebrew today the other interesting thing is that the, the, the fellow called, you should know his name, Albert Einstein, was offered the presidency of Israel in 1952. All right? So Albert Einstein, the, the scientist, they offered him to become the president of Israel and he turned that down, and you, you would have known if he became president, but he turned that down uh, because he said he spent his whole life working with mathematics and physics and wasn't used to dealing with people and government. So he didn't want to mess things up. Okay? But he, he was actually a Zionist. So he actually believed in the formation of his, a country for his own people. So he was actually a supporter of that as well. But, okay, 
So we have Nebuchadnezzar 606 takes Judah captive. In 536, Cyrus makes a command that they can go back and start fixing their temple. And instead of 70 years now, Gabriel is now offering Daniel 70 weeks. Now, what are these 70 weeks? Well, literally, 70 sevens. All right? 70 sevens. That's literally what it means. So, he says, the 70 sevens, or 70 weeks, are appointed for your people. And what's interesting is that they already were used to dealing with sevens in terms of years. So, go back to Leviticus 25.8. Leviticus 25.8, because this was not a new concept to them. God had already given them a key to this thing as well, beforehand. And so you'll have a look and we're going to find out what these 70 weeks are. Are they days? Are they minutes? Are they months? Are they something else? But Leviticus 25.8. Leviticus 25.8. It says, Now shalt number... Seven Sabbaths of years unto thee. Now, what's the Sabbath? The seventh, right? It's actually the seventh day, right? So he, it says here, thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee 49. So seven Sabbaths of 49. Remember, I, had, I told you you were going to have mass today. You're going to have a lot more of it, okay? So God already had made provision for them to understand and to, to have a key that when he speaks about seven or these weeks, a week is seven days. God's essentially saying like a Sabbath, seven Sabbaths. And so here we have 70 Sabbaths or 70 weeks of years. And so how many years is that? Well, that's 70 times seven, which is 490 years. Right? So that's the first number to keep a track of. And this is significant because not only does 490 years tell them their time that God's allotted to them to do accomplish these things, but it points to the arrival of the Messiah. It tells them when he's arriving, when he's going to be when he's going to be born and when he's going to actually do his stuff. And so let's have a look. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring an everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So it's important to note here that the seventy weeks of years, what this has to do with the time leading up to the inauguration of the Messiah, when he arrives as king. Okay, um, so. What are the goals that God gave his people to achieve within these 70 weeks? Well, he provides a list of six things. Let's have a look at them in order. But before we do, pay close attention at who this is speaking about. This is not speaking about the church. Right? It's not speaking about the church. The church did not exist in those days. It's not speaking to Gentiles like us. It is speaking to specifically, what does it say? Daniel's people and their city which is Jerusalem, okay? And so they had something they had to achieve in these 70 weeks. And he says, let's start off, to finish the transgression. 
So the 70 weeks were given, first of all, for them to finish their transgression and to put it, essentially, he's saying to them, to put an end to your rebellion against me. To finish your rebellion. And what, what do we find? That when their Messiah arrived, did they finish their rebellion? No, they didn't. They rejected their king when he, when he came. And they're still in a state of transgression or rebellion against the Lord. But this will end one day, it says, when they receive Jesus Christ as their King and Messiah. Do you remember when John the Baptist was preaching what he was preaching about? He was preaching specifically for them to repent and to make room for and make a way for the King who was coming. Right? <clears throat> okay, turn to Mark chapter 1 verse 2. Mark chapter 1, verse 2. Because the message of John the Baptist was not the gospel. It was for Israel to get ready because her king was arriving. The one they had been waiting for for so long. It was a message of repentance and an end to their rebellion against God. Because when you're about to receive God's king... What you're saying is, I'm willing to subject myself to him. Okay, So, Mark chapter 1 verse 2 says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John, the ba John did baptise in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. So what were they doing? They were repenting and making a way, preparing their hearts for the, to receive this king. Because he's saying, he's arrived now. You've waited all these years, he's arrived. But they rejected him in the end. So had they, had they finished transgressions? Their transgression against God? No. Let's continue. To make an end of sins. Okay? If Israel had received Christ as their king and their repentance had been true, they may have already also made an end of sins. But they neither received him as their king nor did they receive him as their saviour. You see, he arrived as a king, but they crucified him on a cross. And he died on a cross for the salvation of the world. They neither received him as their king nor have they received him as their saviour. Turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 25 with me. Romans 11, 25. But the Apostle Paul explains something for us. So Paul is speaking to the Romans here. Romans aren't normally Jewish. Verse 25 in chapter 11. And he says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceit, lest you become a bit proud and arrogant, right? That blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Until. See that word until? That's a very important word. Because that word until means there's an end to it, right? So they're going to be, they're blind in part, 
until a particular time. And that until is when the Gentiles have finished coming into the church. Let's continue. Verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. He's speaking in those days. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Did God choose his people? Yes, he did. Did he bless them in many ways? Yes, he did. Did he make promises to them that haven't been fulfilled yet? Yes, he did. Does God go back on his promises? No, he doesn't. He fulfills every promise that he's... That he's that he, he will fulfill every promise he's ever made, and he's already fulfilled plenty of them. Will he abandon his people that he's made promises to? The answer to that is zero, no. Okay? So, when a person receives Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, guess what? That's an end to their sin. It's an end because they received the payment that was made for their sin. And their sins become fully paid for. But has Israel received Christ in this way? The answer is no. They're still blind to that particular truth. So the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. But he's speaking here of Israel, not specifically us. So God has not abandoned them. And they're blind until the last Gentile comes in. And then he starts again with them. And third point, to make reconciliation for iniquity. What's reconciliation for iniquity? Well, to reconcile two parties that are at war with each other or offended at each other is what Christ did on that cross. He paid the penalty for us so that we could be reconciled back to God. You see, we offended God. He didn't offend us. We broke his laws. We rebelled against him. And he has every right to be offended at us. But because of the sacrifice of his son, the Bible says that those who receive him are reconciled back to God. His wrath, his justice, and all the offence is completely taken care of. Any injury that was done by us toward him is cleared up. Have the Jews received that reconciliation with God? The answer is no. They rejected him as their king and they rejected his sacrifice to them for salvation as a people I'm talking about here. Instead, the Gentiles have taken that up. The Gentiles have received it and and it's our calling to get this message of reconciliation to the world. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us. All right, so he's given us something. The ministry, which is the way you serve other people, the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ. God was in Christ, which means Christ is God. He was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What's that word of reconciliation? What are we telling everyone? We're teaching them the gospel. We're sharing the gospel with them because we want them to be reconciled back to God as well, as we are. Has Israel done that? No. But one day Israel will. And they will turn and repent and 
it will be in a time that we call the tribulation period. In that day, Israel as a nation, as a whole, which is something that's maybe never happened before, will turn to God and believe and receive Christ. But not today. And in that day, Zechariah 13, 1 says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David. That's not us. The house of David is the other people of Israel. And to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So that hasn't happened yet. They haven't been reconciled back to God. The next point, fourth one, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, righteousness can't enter until sin is taken care of, can it? You can't be declared righteous or right or just before God until all that sin is, is dealt with. And Israel hasn't done this either. But turn back with me to Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. They may not be declared righteous before God now. They rejected him when he came and, and his sacrifice. But there's going to come a day when they will be righteous. And Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and, they, and, I, and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It will happen to Israel too. There they will repent and God will forget and put away their sin. And the next one was to seal up vision and prophecy. That's the fifth one. Though the Bible is complete and perfect, and we know it was complete by around 90 AD, the Jews to this day, have they accepted the New Testament's testimony? No. So for us, it's complete. For them, it's not. They haven't sealed prophecy up and they've rejected its message. And so they are in um, a precarious position that when the Antichrist comes, that they will be likely to believe him because they have not accepted the gospel message and the New Testament writings. And so they're still waiting for the Messiah. And it will only be at a time when God anoints 144,000 Jews and the two witnesses that are in Jerusalem who preach against the Antichrist, only then will they actually receive the gospel and believe the New Testament. And finally, to anoint the most holy. And that could mean two things. That's either to anoint Christ as their king, because kings were anointed, in Israel, um, but it also means to anoint the temple, and they haven't built their temple yet. 
And that's where the Bible says that Christ will one day rule the world and to be worshipped. So either way you look at it, they haven't done that. They haven't anointed me as their king. They haven't anointed the temple for his service. And out of all these six things, none of them has been done yet. God's justice has been satisfied by Christ. He was resurrected, proving that he was the Lamb of God. The Son of God came to take away sin from this world, but so far they haven't achieved these things, but will one day in the future. And as a point of interest, these six things happen to every born-again believer. Every born-again believer experiences these six things. We chose to end our rebellion against God and we surrendered and believed in Him. We accepted the end of our sins, which was God putting His putting all those sins on His Son on that cross. We became reconciled to God because of the sacrifice of His Son. We are clothed now in the, His righteousness, not our own. We have received Jesus as our King. And guess what? God has put his temple within us. And that is the blessing that we have as God's people. So let's look at verse 25 of Daniel, chapter 9. So he says here, now this is where the math starts coming into it, guys, okay? So get your calculators out. Know therefore, and understand, verse 25, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The streets shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So, let's, let's see if we can break this down for you. So the first thing we notice is that from the command to rebuild Jerusalem which includes the wall and the street, will be, you'll notice it says 7 weeks and 62 weeks. What does that add up to? 69 weeks, right? It doesn't say 70 weeks. It actually says 69 weeks, and it's made up of 62 and 7. Gives us 69. Well, 69 times 7, if those weeks are years, is 483 years. Okay? So, from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem... Unto Messiah the Prince, we know it's going to be 483 years. Now you're going to find how amazing this Bible is. Since the days, we've got to set some ground rules first, okay? The calendar we use today is called the Gregorian calendar. There is a Julian calendar. And our calendar is a solar calendar, right? So our calendar is based upon the time it takes for the Earth to go around the Sun exactly once. Okay, we have days while the Earth spins around like this every 24 hours. Right, that's why we have the have a day. Um, we have um, 365 and a quarter days. They've calculated that the Earth goes exactly around once. Now there are plenty of calendars in the world. The Gregorians are the only one. 
And most of them do essentially the same sort of thing. They, they sort of tell you more or less 363, 65, and they've got leap years. So we've got leap years, and now you, you, know, you know, every four years, February's got a different day. You know why they have to do that? Because it's not exactly 364 or five days, right? There's, there's, a, there's a balance that has to be created. That's why February has different days. That's why all the months are different days as well, okay? The Jews have a different calendar to us. The Chinese have a different calendar to us. There's, there's a whole range of different calendars, all organized in different sort of ways, but all roughly end up in the same sort of way. Okay, so the Jews have a, not a solar calendar, they actually have a, a, a loony solar calendar. Loony, I said that, probably said that wrong. Okay, it's not a crazy one, but it's a lunar, okay, calendar. So it's based upon the cycles of the moon. Do you, know how many, do you know how many days it takes for the moon to go around the earth? There's someone here that should know that answer. A month. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly a month. It's actually, it's actually 29 and a half days, right? 29 and a half days. So the Jews calendar today goes, I think they got like 29, 30 days, 29, 30 days, 29, 30 days. 20, so they actually do that because it's essentially based on the moon. And then to try to line it back up with the sun, they add a month in every, every few years, right? They had a whole month, but they keep, they want to keep it in line with the moon because the moon is important for what? Well, we don't, yeah, I suppose tides are important, but for crops and things like that, um, and, and a number of other things, they use the moon to actually do that. So is it the Jewish calendar? Is it the Gregorian calendar, the Julian calendar, the Chinese calendar? Well, that's actually not. The Bible gives us another type of calendar, a prophetic calendar, and actually says that, that that number, to make it life really simple for us, is 360 days. It's simply 12 months of 30 days. You might say, but that's not exactly a year. It doesn't really matter. God gave us that just to show us, and if you're working out prophecy in the Bible, it makes it nice and easy for you. And the reason I'm saying that it's important is because there are a number of clues in the Bible about God's prophetic way of actually using a calendar. Because which calendar do you use if you're trying to decipher God's God's plans here? If he says it's 483 years, well, Lord, what do I use? The Chinese calendar, the Jewish calendar, the the Jewish calendar's changed as well. It's been influenced by the, the Babylonians and a whole range of other, other things over time. So God simply says, My prophetic calendar is 360. Sorry, it's 360 days, which is 12 days, 12 months of 30. And if you look at Revelation, it says that 42 months is equal to 1260 days. And so you know that every month is going to be 30. And so this clue is given to us now. So it's a prophetic calendar God's given us, and it's 360 days. Either way, it's not that big of a deal, but over hundreds of years, it does make a bit of a change, okay? The other initial challenge is that this passage tells us that from the decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, is those 483 years. But there were four decrees that were given. And it started with Cyrus, as I mentioned to you already. So go back to Ezra, chapter 1. Ezra, because Ezra is the one that Cyrus gave the permission to, to go back. And let's see if... If this is the thing that, this is the decree that actually lines up with what this prophecy says. So Cyrus gave, we know Cyrus gave this decree in 536 BC. Okay? 
So Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, it's first year, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you, all of his people, uh, of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and look at his proclamation. Build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, what did the decree say in that, that prophecy from Daniel? In Daniel 9.25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build what? Jerusalem. It didn't say temple. So this decree is not the one. Okay? It to, to, to give permission to rebuild the temple is not the same as building a whole city, right? And to fix the wall of a city and all that sort of stuff. So that's not necessarily the one. So there was another commandment that went forth to rebuild Jerusalem and its wall. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2. So this is the beautiful thing about the Word of God. We have books like um, Ezra and Nehemiah that give us the history behind these prophecies and where they came to pass. So Nehemiah... is concerned with a fellow called Artaxerxes. Okay, he was also Persian king. <laughs> Nehemiah 2.1 says, It came to pass in the month, listen, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had uh, not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the, the king said unto me, Why is thou countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was sore, very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favour in thy sight, that thou would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So please the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convene me over till I come into Judah. And look at verse 8. And the letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which are appertained to the house, 
and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So Nehemiah was concerned with rebuilding the gates of the city, rebuilding its wall, the street, the palace, and everything else that went around it. And so that is a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which is very different. Now, that happened um, in 4... What have we got here? So from the time that that was given in 445 BC, if we add on the 483 prophetic years, we end up at an interesting date, 30 AD. So uh, if you use three 60-day calendar... From 445 BC, when you add on the Jewish years, it, get, it comes to 30 AD. Before we go there, there may be a question floating around in your mind about why did Gabriel divide 69 weeks into 7 and 62? Why does he bother to do that? Why, why didn't Gabriel say 69 weeks? Why did he say 7 weeks and 62? Well, you know what's interesting about the 7 and then the 62? is that 7 times 7 is what? 49, right? So he says, well, 49 years are going to pass. And he, and he says that, what's interesting is that those 7 um, uh, weeks or 49 years coincides with the conclusion of Nehemiah finishing the repairs on the wall and the city and the palace. So he finishes the job for the city. And also ends with and coincides with the, the end of Malachi's ministry. You know who Malachi is? Go to your last book in the Old Testament. He's the last writer in the Old Testament and that seven weeks finishes not just the repairs in Jerusalem to rebuild the city, but it ends the actual Old Testament prophets. It finishes the Old Testament completely. And now the world is going to have to wait some 400 years before the New Testament starts to be built. And we call that the intertestamental period. And during those 400 years or so, God used it to prepare the world for the arrival of his son. That's why. Where were the Romans here? Were there any Romans? Were there any crucifixions? No. By the time, in those 400 years, the Greeks had come around which meant the world was speaking Greek. That's why you have New Testaments written in Greek. And the Romans came into power, and that's why Jesus was crucified. So God prepared the world for the arrival of his son during those 400 years. So the seven weeks finished off the Old Testament and the rebuilding of the temple, and now we have 62 weeks to go, right? Okay. By our calendar... They've calculated that Jesus was probably born around 4 BC. Those of you who think that Jesus was born in, one B, in 0, the year 0 or whatever, there's no. He was born in 4 BC and he commenced his ministry at what age? 30 years of age. How long did ministry roughly last for? Three years. Three years, right? So if he was born in roughly 4 BC, if he was 30 years of age, it brings it to about 26 to 27 AD. How long did his ministry last for? Three years. Add three years on top of 26 and a half or 27, you get to 30 AD. 
Now, what's so important about 30 AD? That's when he was crucified. Right? Okay. But, this is a stick about his crucifixion. This says, unto Messiah the Prince. So if it wasn't concerned with his birth, this is telling us something else. There is an event which speaks about him being, what does a prince mean? A prince means someone who's a royal family to be the ruler, right? So it says unto Messiah, the prince. So there is an event that occurred just days before his crucifixion, just days, which fulfills exactly this thing, to be received as the Messiah and to be received as the prince of Jerusalem. And it fits beautifully, and it's what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Okay? And it's been estimated that the date for his triumphal entry was April the 2nd, AD 30. Okay? That's or using a Jewish calendar, whatever. And the correlation is so startling when you think of it. So it lines up perfectly with the decree from Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem in troubled times. And you, if you read Nehemiah, you'll know that he built that, that, that wall in troubled times because he had a lot of opposition in that particular time. And what's beautiful is the same city that was rebuilt in those times, Jesus was now riding into on that cult to become its king. And it was still there. And so, I want you to have a look at, actually, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read this for you. Zechariah 9, 9 prophesies the day that he would ride into that city, which was repaired by Nehemiah, and then 483 years later, he walk, he, he, he's riding into it as its king. And it says in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 21 with me because Matthew records the fulfillment of that and also every other gospel writer records this event happening. All four of them recorded as something important. And so we see in Matthew 21, 6, it says, and the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt and put on and, and put on uh, them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried. Now listen to this saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Huh? Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Who were they waving palms at it and, and spreading in the way and cheering? They were calling him the son of David, which means he's the descendant of King David that has the right, the right to rule Jerusalem again. Gabriel told Daniel the date that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Isn't that startling? The date. 
And on that day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. If only they had done their sums. If only they had spent time studying this, they would have understood that the year 2021 is way too long to wait. They should have realised the day he was actually coming in there. And they didn't. And they missed it. And Jesus cries over Jerusalem because he knows they've missed the opportunity. They've missed their moment, their time, when they, he was there in front of them. Now listen, to his, listen to his words, and this is recorded just after, right? In Luke 19.41, he says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. He just had ridden into it, but he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes, and they're still hid. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground. And thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. And that was the day of their visitation. Recorded in Daniel, given by the angel Gabriel almost 500 years before, to the day. And what also did they miss? They missed not only their king, they missed their saviour. Because in Daniel 9.26 now, it says, And after three score and two weeks, after the end of the Old Testament, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolation to determine. So after the first seven years are complete, or the first seven sevens are complete, which are the 49 years, and now we have six, now the 62 weeks have been completed, which is 434 years, which leads us to that 30 AD date says the Messiah would be cut off. Now what does that mean, cut off, you reckon? It means he was crucified. He was cut off from the land of the living, but not for himself, for them, and for us, and for the sins of the world. This passage told the Jews that they would, their Messiah would come on a day. It also told them that their Messiah would be cut off for their sake. Yet they failed to see what had come, what had arrived. The result of their rejection ended with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the burning down of the temple. And so that's what you have, the Wailing Wall now, is just essentially the foundational stones. And once again, they were scattered into the world. But this is not the end. This doesn't speak about the prince or the antichrist. It says the people of the prince are going to come and destroy the city, and they did, the Romans. Do you remember the revived Roman Empire? Because the, the prince will come as he's part of the revived Roman Empire at the end, and the end is going to be like a flood. There's going to be wars and desolations, and there's going to be so much bad things happening, which is described all for us in Revelation. The end of the world, as we shall see, shall come with one great war and Jerusalem will be desolate once again. Why? Because the Antichrist will appear 
and he will seek to be crowned king himself. He will ride into Jerusalem. Once the temple is built, he will give permission for the temple to be rebuilt and then he's going to say, my chance to ride in. They'll accept me. And so he sets up the abomination of desolation, the actual statue that everyone is to worship. And finally, verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Remember, we've only gone for 69 weeks. There were 70. Where's this last week gone? Well, it's seven years. Because, remember, it's years. It's the week of a year, of years. And so this last week, this last seven years, says that this prince is going to confirm a covenant, an agreement, with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, after three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. He's going to stop them sacrificing to God. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even under the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Do you remember what I shared with you about the Antichrist? He will make a covenant with Israel and the, the, all the surrounding nations for seven years. He will allow Israel to rebuild the temple. At three and a half years, he's going to say they've built it. They've started doing sacrifices already. And he says, stop those sacrifices. You have to worship me now. And he sets up the abomination of desolation. And he forces the world to worship that, that abomination of desolation. We have the false prophet who forces everyone to take the mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And the world will become a desolation because the desolate will be set up in the temple of God and the world will become desolate when they choose to worship. And God pours out his judgment upon them all. That's the final week. The final week is the tribulation period, is the seven years just split into two halves. The final week, the church is not here. The church is already gone. God's finished his work with the Gentiles. Remember, Israel will be blinded only until the last Gentile comes in, and that's the church. And then God starts again with Israel. And their eyes are going to be opened. And then all those things, the finishing of transgression, an end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, sealing up vision and prophecy, anointing the most holy as Jesus will after his triumphant return, his second coming, and he destroys the armies of the, of the devil, of the Antichrist, he will ride into Jerusalem. And he will be anointed the king, and he will sit in the temple, and he will rule the world for a thousand years from there. So where are we? What's happened in the what's happened that last week? Where are we? Well, we're not here. We're here now, and that's why there's a break between the 69th week and the 70th. We're in that break. We're living in that. That's why God had to break up those years into 69 and one, because the one is where He starts dealing with His people again, and they turn to Him, and so. The, new, the church is specifically said to be a mystery, which wasn't even revealed in the Old Testament. Okay, It wasn't revealed. 
And so we, the Gentiles, have come into the church. We've, re- we've received our King. We've been born again. We've had our, our, um, our sins forgiven. But what a glorious day it will be when Israel actually finally believes. That will be a blessing for the entire world. And for us, the message is that salvation is for today. The church is today and the day of salvation is today. So will you receive the king now? He might not be walking, he might not have ridden into Jerusalem and they accepted him then, but will you receive him into your heart now? Because he is meek and he is lowly and he's willing to carry all of your burden. And he was he's happy to knock at the door, but you have to open up to him. You have to receive him as your Lord and your Saviour. And so my prayer is that there isn't anyone here who doesn't know him. My prayer is that every person here knows him and has received him as their Saviour and as their Lord and that he has come with all his meekness and love and gentleness into your heart and that he now lives there. And if there is anyone here today who does not know Jesus as their Saviour, my prayer is that today is your final day. That today is the day. Don't waste another day without him. Because we only have a few of them. God bless you. Thank you.